Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of season two. I realized after I had already um, completely processed last the last episode of season one that I forgot to tell you all that I was taking a break. So I did put it in the show notes, but I don't know if some of you were wondering where I was for the past five weeks. Um, I just took some time to focus on writing and kind of getting the new year off to a good start with some goal setting and some planning. And I just, I wanted to get ahead on the podcast a little bit and get ahead on my writing a little bit so that I could um, enter into this new season with more focus. But now I'm back starting a new season and I'm super excited about our guest today. Suzanne Woods Fisher is a best-selling award-winning author of more than 30 books, both fiction and nonfiction. She's the author of the soon-to-be-released The Moonlight School, which is about Cora Wilson-Stewart. She pioneered a grassroots movement that began in 1911 in a corner of Appalachia, Kentucky, to eliminate adult illiteracy. She opened the Rural Schoolhouse to Adults on Moonlit Nights, hoping for 150 to come to the 51 schoolhouses. More than 1,200 came out of the hills and hollows to learn to read and write. In two years, adult illiteracy in Round County was eliminated. The movement spread throughout Kentucky, then other Southern states, then the entire country. So I just loved talking to Suzanne Woods Fisher. She was um, just so enthusiastic about her story and about Cora Wilson Stewart and what this woman has done in the past. And I just love Suzanne's heart for ending illiteracy. We talk a little bit about illiteracy in the U.S. today. And then um, we also get into Suzanne's writing career, how she got started and the highlights and then the relationships that she's developed with her readers. I just really enjoyed this conversation with Suzanne Woods Fisher, and I hope you enjoy it too. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's great to meet you, Allison. I've heard about your podcast, so it's a pleasure to be on. Great. Um, You have a new novel coming out, The Moonlight School. It's releasing on February 2nd. Can you tell us about this book? This is a story that I feel as if everybody should know about because it's one of those unsung heroes, my favorite kind of writing, my favorite kind of story. And this woman, and I'm going to give you a spoiler, but that's okay because this is the, um, it's based on a true story and this is like the heart of what it's about. So this woman in 1911, Cora Wilson Stewart, was the first female superintendent of education for her county in eastern Kentucky. And at her county, which was um, not a coal mining town, it was actually lumber, had one of the highest illiteracy, adult illiteracy rates in the country. The 1910 census had just discovered that it was over over 25% illiterate, whereas the U.S., as a whole at that time was about 7.7% adult illiterates, illiterate adults, which was right. So the 25% was not only shocking, but it was probably much higher because 
the area was so remote and isolated and people mm. the government for a census anyway and on and on. Well, the thinking of that day was that children had a window in their mind when they were open to read, their brains were able to read and write. And once it closed, that was it. That was just that what the academics believed at that time. Wow. Most people accepted it, including Cora. But there was a couple of incidents that happened in her life that she, in fact, especially I think during the previous year, and it made her just give this a second thought. And she came up with this idea of opening her rural schoolhouses, of which there were over 50, on moonlit nights to adults who wanted to come in out of the hills and the hollows and learn how to read and write. Now, she had to convince her school teachers who'd been teaching children all day, and most of them, Allison, were, were young themselves. I mean, really just barely graduating from eighth grade. So most are mm. teenagers. There's kind of a saying that you could tell who was the teacher and who was the student because the teacher wore shoes. I mean, they were basically oh. all so young and that she somehow was able to, to get them all on board for teaching at night. So the very first night was September 5th, 1911. After harvest, there's a reason it happened in the fall. You know, it was a little bit of a quieter time for the farmers. And she hoped maybe 150 people would come. She hoped for that. So 51 schoolhouses are open. Mm -hmm. 1,200 people came out of the hills. To wow. Right. Ages 18 to 86. And then it gets even better. Within two years, she wiped out adult illiteracy in her county. It's wow. a story. It's such a wonderful story. And then the yes. school concept spread through all of Kentucky, through the southern states, through much of the U.S. And it's just one of those stories that I can't believe we don't know more about. And I stumbled on it, which I can tell you about later. But I just think literacy is so powerful in what she did. All volunteers, all grassroots, all from you know the ground up to make such a difference. I just think it's it's just so inspiring. It is. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, tell me how you stumbled upon this story and why you knew you had to write the book. Well, I was I listen when I write to a classical music station and it was one of those mornings, it was probably September 5th, a few years ago, when the DJ, I don't know if you'd call it classical music guy, a DJ, but the narrator, <laughs> whoever, he said, now this day in history, the Moonlight Schools got started, da, 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 da. And I, for some reason, that just like caught my attention. And I started mm. studying it and learning about it and heard, read this story of what Coral Wilson-Stewart did, just a really an ordinary woman creating an extraordinary experience for others. And I went to my editor and I said, I think we've got to write this story. And she loved it too. In fact, her comment back to me was, do not tell anybody about this, which is kind of funny because it's a true story. It's, <laughs> it's there for the taking. But yeah, within it wasn't long before a contract was signed and and the book is ready to go. And I'm I'm really pleased, really excited about it coming out on February 2nd because it's just, you know, literacy is every bit as relevant today as it is the, back then. In fact, we can talk later about it, but, you know, some of the statistics today are so shocking of where our country is and where mm. the difference we could each make in helping people learn to read because reading is 
absolutely critical to a life of of someone reaching their potential, whatever that potential is. Yeah. So I understand the Moonlight School had an amazing effect on the residents of Rowan County, but it also started a movement across the nation. Um, can you tell how this school's influence changed the entire country? Well, it started just spilling over into especially some of these subgroups, the people that are sort of forgotten, Native Americans, for example. There's movement mm. for Native Americans, for other segments of society that were that really, you know, the othered, those who, who were overlooked. And it was just a remarkable movement of understanding that adults can learn to read and write. Cora developed a curriculum that was not a child's curriculum. She actually put the time in to almost make, um, what did they call it? It was sort of like a, a, a sped up version of literacy. The very first night, these adults learned how to write their own name which probably oh. sounds so so uh, hard for us to understand, except if you can put yourself back as a six-year-old or a seven-year-old and suddenly, instead of having to write an X, your name is there. Mm-hmm. You are a person. Think of how, how much that says about you and your individuality. So she created this idea of, of teaching literacy through relevance, and she taught them how to read the local newspaper. She actually even created little newspapers that would have things that mattered to these adults, the weather reports, the things going on in the town, just to start to give them the skills for what they needed. And they were so highly motivated. I think that was the other part that the academics had not understood was the motivation of an adult is amazing. And the capacity in their memory and that they could learn at lightning speed if they wanted to which is kind of exciting. So what's said as we talk about literacy then and now is that our country is in really, I think, a literacy crisis. And we have so many crises right now, I don't mean to (laughs) raise the alarm, but this has been going on for a long time. And it it has been, it, it really is a concern of how illiterate so many people in America are to read English. And the way we can make a difference. I mean, because when people, when parents struggle with literacy, it's very likely they're going to struggle with employment, with Mm. income. In turn, they pass those struggles down to their children. When a parent can't read, there are no books in the home. Children, you know, it's a cycle that goes on and on. Our prisons are, uh, the statistics are, are just shocking of what um, I think like well over 65 or 85% of yeah, 85% of um, juvenile delinquents, for example, are functionally illiterate. In prison, it's about 70% are functionally illiterate, which is, which is really a concern. And it's something that can, can change. I think Cora Wilson-Stewart showed us that this can change. And there's so many ways. Each one of us can do a difference. There's a, a phrase called each one teach one. I have a lot of friends who volunteer in our public library. And they're just working with an, an immigrant one one day a week, you know, one afternoon a week. They're just working with reading skills and wow, reading to your children and your grandchildren. It seems so simple, but that is teaching literacy. That's teaching the value of books. There's just so many different ways of doing that, even donating books to low-income families or schools. Um, there's so many little things like that, just that are 
are ways each one of us can can help with this problem that is facing our country. Yeah, that's great. I was thinking, um, you know, I was thinking of asking what are some things we can do because I know probably my listeners, well, I'm sure my listeners are readers. So um, I was thinking if they have kids, I'm sure they have books in the home. And um, But you gave some great examples of what we can do for others, whether we um, reach out to them or donate books or volunteer to teach literacy. Um, are there any other recommendations you want to give about what to do? Well, for example, I have a little free library out in front of my house and it's right. a book sharing program that is just around the globe. Again, grassroots, which I just love the grassroots where people are yes. doing this out of the goodness of their heart. And that has been incredible, Allison. It is, it's amazing. The community that has created that little free library. I just have wow. probably probably three or four times a day, there's people in and out of it. Books are left, books are, are taken, um, little notes are left sometimes. It's just, that's just like a small thing, simple, yeah, but really small. I think um, sending, I think even sometimes supporting local teachers is one way to help them as well. I mean, we take it for granted, I think, when we are, are so literate. I don't think we even understand what it must be like to be functionally illiterate where, I mean, the statistics are, are so alarming that in the last, in 2019, I have a stat that 27% of U.S. adults said they had either not read or completed a single book in the previous year. Yes. I mean, that is, that is really alarming. <laughs> you know, when you think right, we have um, such, we're going in the wrong direction. And I think, those of us who value the written word, maybe, maybe especially have a calling to try to, to make a difference in this area. Absolutely. Um, when you look at America, when your book was set versus how it is today, do you feel like we've made progress in the illiteracy problem? Or is it, are we worse off the same? What do you think? You know, you'd think we would be better off when you think of just what education as the advancements of it in the last century. You'd think that would be, and yet it's the exact opposite. In 1910, 7.7% of the U.S. population couldn't write their name in any language whatsoever. Mm. And now it's about 21%. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 14% of Americans lack sufficient skills to read even a newspaper or a medic medication label. I mean, think wow. of how everyday skills are not capable when you don't have those skills to read them. Right. So it is. And I, this was kind of interesting to me. One third of adults who struggle with illiteracy are 65 years or older. Mm. Wow. It, it really is kind of shocking. And it, it's a surprise of, of a country like ours that, that uh, we're not addressing this problem. I think Barbara Bush years ago had a whole focus on literacy that made an impact, but yes, but it is, it is a problem and it is something we need to kind of be paying attention to. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't want to change the topic too much because this is, that's such an important topic, but I also want to talk more about your book as well. Um, because rural Appalachia was the setting 
I'm sorry, I'm saying it wrong. No, I had another author who taught me that it's Appalachia. It is Appalachia. <laughs> I I kind of think it depends on where you live. Because, yes. <laughs> because I've always said Appalachia and I've hiked on the Appalachian Trail, but or Appalachian Trail. Um, but basically rural Appalachia is the is the setting of your novel. So do you have experience with that area or with um that culture, I mean, it's, it's its own culture, especially at that time. How did you navigate writing about, about it? Well, you bring up a good point about writing about an area that you're not living in. You're not, you know, I, I haven't, I've been there, but I haven't lived in that culture. Right. But I did. So just as an author, as I tackled this subject and to back up a little bit and just think, okay, I have the structure, I have the basic idea. I have this remarkable woman that I want to understand Yet there's not a lot of, there's a couple academic books written about her, a lot of letters and things like that she's written that are archived. Mm-hmm. At, but, you know, how do you get inside her mind? And then, and then kind of like zoom out a little bit. How do I create a novel about this woman who is in her late 30s? And curiously enough, she was so far ahead of her time. She, was divorced three times. Now, Allison, when you think about that, twice to the same man. So, oh. you know, a woman who, 1911, you know, this kind of yeah. a, how do you get your head around this kind of thing? So as you talk about, you've asked me about just writing the, the setting, the scene, the woman, there's so much to just study before you actually write. Just, I interviewed friends who live in Kentucky I read as much as I could. I even watched every documentary I could find just to start taking notes on things like looking at just what was it like logging, you know, for a lumber community because so much of that eastern part of Kentucky is the coal mining, but not Round County. So to look at what the logging did to them and the life it created and the life it took from them as the virgin timber was, was carted away. You know, and then they, so typical of Americans, they come rushing in, wipe it out, you know, and then right. away they go. And they kind of left the county in a pretty, pretty uh, grim state. Mm. So, and again, this is 1911 and that too plays in. What was it like then? Not just, not just in, like in the late 1890s was in the lumber and the virgin timber was really sought after as, mm-hmm. but what was it like in 19? 19- 10 and 1911 before world war one before so much changed and it just takes i think a lot of studying and i used to be a nonfiction writer i i mean a nonfiction magazine writer so what i'm so grateful for is that those skills i think taught me a lot about researching and one thing i started learning as i was writing those magazine articles is that when i started having information overlap a number of times, I felt confident, like, okay, I've got it. I've got an understanding of the terrain or of the historical impact of a of an economy like the lumber business or something like that. So hopefully that has come into my novels in a really good way. And I always like to encourage writers to not box themselves up as fiction or nonfiction because nonfiction teaches you those research skills. And then as you work on fiction, you're learning how to really jazz up the sentences mm-hmm. that can spill back in your nonfiction and give it a lot more life and a lot more, a lot more of that in the moment, in the setting the stage and 
creating a scene. Right. That's so true. So as I was working a little bit on on Cora, one thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, she's a woman in her late thirties and divorced three times. And she came to the a point of deciding really, I think that marriage was not for her. It was just not, <laughs> she, she was probably a very strong woman, very well liked, but probably, you know, ahead of her time, so bright, so capable. I mean, imagine running for office for the first time in yeah. a, a female in that time. So um, before Bundy, before women could vote, can I yeah. add, she ran for office. So that's... Excellent point. <laughs> and then, oddly enough, she ran against her brother-in-law. So oh, wow. Yeah. So but here, I needed a love story because really almost every book, except for like To Kill a Mockingbird, has a love story in it. And so how was I going to do that? How was I going to figure that out? Because that was not going to come with Cora and I didn't want to... I really want to stay in the moment of the Moonlight School. So that's why I created a story around the story of Cora mm. and used other characters to really shine the spotlight on Cora Wilson Stewart, what she was like, how she affected people around her, how she was a little bit of a tornado. She'd come in, get you all excited, and she'd disappear and you wonder, what have I just signed up for? <laughs> Things like that. So, yeah, well, so you start the story focusing on um, her niece. Is it her niece or her cousin? Her cousin, sorry. Um, and is is Lucy a real person? That's your protagonist, right? Yes, Lucy is not. She okay. is a young kind of a protege, a person Cora has taken under her wing and Cora and Lucy's father were first cousins. They were close. They all grew up in the same part of Round County. So they, their family has history there, but the Lucy's father left and didn't want to look back. But mm-hmm. Cora is pulling Lucy back in for a special reason, which you'll find out as the story goes on. But it's kind of fun to use Lucy, this younger, probably 19 years old, She's been well-educated, very sheltered, lives in Lexington, has had a well-to-do life. And suddenly she is thrust into Appalachia, riding up on a horse (laughs) into the mountains. Which she's never done before. I mean, I felt kind of bad for her being thrown into the situation. And, you know, for the first probably third of the book, she's just like, get me out of here. Just get me out of here. (laughs) But, But... the story goes on and there's a reason she's there for many reasons. I mean, it's it's kind of redundant, but it becomes quite a life-changing experience for Lucy to hang in there for a little while and see the first Moonlight School happen. Wow. Um, So, but she is a fictional character. Yes, she is. And how many, how many of the characters are fictional versus real people? Did you find out about real um, students of um, Cora's. So what I did was in there's there were three events that happened in Cora's life in recent events to 1911 that just kind of shocked her thinking about adults learning to read. I used those exact three incidents in the novel. So and they're and the names at least one or two of them are the same names that I could find. Mm-hmm. So I, I brought in those characters. I also brought in a couple of the teachers I know for a fact were on her, her role books. Um, but, 
and I, I also brought in some of the time, the something kind of unique called um, shape notation. So I have a singing schoolmaster who's sort of the love interest a little bit. There's like a love triangle for Lucy. Uh. And I used him. He's a singing schoolmaster that had been impacted by Cora earlier in his life. He's, I picture, okay, look, Allison, picture Johnny Cash like, <laughs> as a young guy, kind of that craggy look, you know, kind of yeah. a, a deep, beautiful voice. Right. And so he's singing schoolmasters, true thing. They used to go from place to place and they would hold these little singing schools. Wow. Usually in fall when harvest again allowed a little more time for the farming families. And everyone was a farmer of some capacity because they mm-hmm. grew their own food. And so they would teach you'd have like a, a covered tent and they would people would come together and they used a special kind of notation, and I think it started up in New England, for illiterates, so that everyone could learn how a song went and how a note went without really being able to read it. And so the singing schoolmaster would would sing out a phrase and the people would repeat. And they'd go like in four squares and they'd he'd turn and pretty much it would become a duet, you know, or quartet kind of a thing. Yeah. But it was wonderful fun, I think, for people. These are the days without television, you know, without movies. And right. created so many unique types of community gatherings for this entertainment as well as a learning experience. But this, the idea that these people couldn't even read music. So this was a, a way for them to carry on because Appalachia has the most remarkable sounds their their history comes from really the scotch irish for the most part some english some german but they were they came from an isolated place in europe you know or, or the uk to an isolated place and that music has retained its uniqueness yeah I mean, we all know this country music but and their language i mean even the language is kind of considered we think of it as a little bit of bumpkin language mm-hmm Allison, it's interesting. It actually goes back to Chaucer. A lot of it is really old English. Yes. I learned some of that in college, actually, about the the history of the English language and that um, southern parts of the U.S. hold on to a lot of the the dialect from that time. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Mm -hmm. It is. Again, back to language. It's just so fun. Right. It's it's living. It's moving all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about your career. You are an award-winning, best-selling author of more than 30 books, which just, I'm always in awe of people who've written, like, I think upwards of 20 books, and I'm just, like, jaw-dropping, you know, um, tell me how you do this. But can you tell us how you got started in your career as an author? You mentioned, you mentioned that you were, um, you wrote articles. Yeah. I, I think I would go back to probably college where I, I love to write. I, and Allison, I mean this really truthfully. I was never identified as a, a talented writer. I was a hardworking person. But mm. I think I'm a person that has developed my ability to write through craftsmanship more than just like intrinsic giftedness. And I know the difference because I have one friend in particular who can just write circles around me <sighs> and and it's just amazing to see her. Um, so I don't mean that in a comparison way because we all are just called to to write if that's the, what the Lord has asked us of, of right. us. But I loved it. I just loved it. And so I worked on this college newspaper and 
when I got out of college, worked in sort of a publication area, um, married, had a family of four kids. And my husband's a corporate guy, so we were transferred quite a bit. And I was able to just keep freelancing all along the way. We even lived in Hong Kong for four years, right when the internet was young. And I was able to continue my contacts and send articles in 7,000 miles away. And and writing and writing. And I'm not saying a ton, but enough that I was continually building skills and you know, four kids is great grit for the oyster. You can really (laughs) learn. There's just so many circumstances that pop up and it was so fun to be able to track something down or go to an expert or go to a a doctor, things like that, and get just some suggestions and then weave it in, talk to other mothers, weave it into stories. I did that so many times and loved it. So we come back from Hong Kong and my kids are now starting to head off to college little by little. And I, I really wasn't sure where I was going to go with writing at this point because magazines were starting to disappear. And I had this idea for a little World War II love story. And I thought, I don't know. I just I came across this saying from Brenda Eulen in a book written in 1936, I think, that's like, if you want to, it's the book is called If You Want to Write. And I think there's this, little opening quote, like everyone is something important to say. Everyone is interesting and is something important to say. And I just, that was so, I don't know, it just spoke to my heart. Like, why am I not trying more? And I kind of realized it's just me. I'm the one holding myself back. So for four months, I, and I work in the laundry room to this day. Wow. Sort of the heart of the home. And it's, it's, it's a terrible work environment. It really is big dogs and I'm always getting bumped. But it it kind of just works for me. And so in this laundry room, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And Allison, I didn't tell my sister. I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my kids. I just wrote. It was just sort of like this pure experience, just private. I didn't have any pressure, any expectations. And at the end of that, at the dinner table one night, I had the first draft, which is a drafty draft. You know, it's it's not (laughs) not great yet, but, but it was completed. And I told my family that I had written a book. And my youngest son, and I'm, I don't know if you, I think you have a son. Yes. You know how the boys are. He said, that's why there's no food in this house. <laughs> Which was true. Yeah. I think even my, my visa bill, and I'm not a big shopper, but the visa was way down. It was just like a total obsessive focus for a little while. But wow. I took that book and worked on it and polished it and pitched it. And even with all my credentials, it's so hard. I mean, there's so much about understanding the business of writing, understanding the trends, what's going on right now. Um, I ended up going with a little small royalty press, which actually looking back was so awesome because to be a, not even a big fish, but maybe a medium fish in a little pond, mm-hmm. you just learn and learn and learn from the ground up and you can make mistakes and you can try again and you don't have a ton of visibility yet. And I learned how to just pitch and market and talk to bookstores about consignment sales and how to speak publicly, which had always been my nightmare experience and, and kind of get over it and move on and not take it too seriously and on and on. But it was so good. And I en- ended up winning a bunch of awards, which is easier to do with a little press you wow. know, awards that caught an agent, an agent. And I had had this conversation about my grandfather who was, was raised plain. One of the, 
he was actually German Baptist, which is similar to the Old Order Amish. Um, you know, like they're all cousins a little bit to each other, to the Mennonites that came first and, right. and all the German Baptists and the, the Amish came late. But my mom's family was extended family. I'd had a lot of exposure to and, and these plain people loved them dearly. So understood beyond the bonnets and the buggies and the beards, you know, what really made them live the way they do 400 years later and continue to hold tight to what they believe to be, uh, you know, the healthiest way to live and the most faithful way of living and the best for the community. So this, this agent knew of an editor with her Val who was looking for a writer to do a nonfiction book about peace and looking to the Amish for peace. And, we had one conversation that my agent set up and it was like one of those moments where all that hard work kind of met an opportunity. And I say that for everybody because you just, there's no such thing as luck, but there is like, there is a moment of all your work is going to come together and, and it's going to, it's going to happen. And that did happen for me. And that book became Amish Peace, Simple Wisdom for a Complicated World. I just love it as my foundation book almost because I literally went door to door back in the Lancaster area, um, creating contacts and meeting with professors at Elizabeth College, Elizabethtown College and all these different Mm -hmm. ways to just kind of like the magazine writing, understand a topic from so many different angles and write credible work. And that book led to fiction. And the Amish fiction was just like booming, which I am so thankful and grateful that I had the door crack open for me. Yeah, And and from there, I've been able to write not just about the Old Order Amish, but also about Quakers and about historical figures like Cora Wilson Stewart and contemporary beach books now I'm writing because when you love to write, you love to write. So yes. Anyway, that's kind of a long answer to a short story, but I, I hope, or short question, but I, I really hope it to inspire everybody to just keep at it. Keep going. Don't get discouraged because this is a, the publishing world is not looking for you. They are looking for why you shouldn't write. Everything is, feels so hard and it is hard, but it's okay. It's, it's, if you're meant to be here, you need to keep, keep believing that. Oh, that's wonderful. I've, I wanted to respond when you were talking about that moment when it all comes together, but I couldn't because I was, my, my eyes were filled with tears and I was choked up. So um, thank you for that, sharing that. Um, That's just so beautiful. You're the beginning of your story. This happened to me in my late forties when really the door to publication opened. And um, I am so thankful it did Allison because Writing is really consuming. It's not just writing a book, which is a whole consuming, you feel like you're in a submarine. Um, you know, you, you just need that quiet and that time to think and write and work. And and then there's a business side of writing that is probably 50% of the whole experience of being an author, where you are developing a subscribership, you are talking to bookstores, you are having virtual events right now, you're back when, you know, used to be book tours, things like that, when there were bookstores. Right. Um, I am so thankful it happened at a time of life when I had the space for it, because I think it it worries me when really young moms are, are sort of so, um, just so longing for that door to open, because 
it will really pull you away from yeah from children. And I think I just want people to understand that the children are not, you are not going to get those moments back. You'll get the writing back, but you're not going to get the time with those little chubby hands and, and all that. And I, I don't mean it has to be one or the other. I'm just saying like, allow the Lord to, to bring the timing in your life at the right time so that you have a piece about that and a really long view. Right. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, I'm, I'm always, when I meet um, younger writers who have young kids, I just think like, how do you fit it all in? Cause um, I don't even homeschool my three kids and I have trouble um, but I've met homeschoolers who do it, who also write books. And I'm just like, when? Yeah. <laughs> when does this happen? Um, but everybody's different. Some people are just um, able to manage their time enough. And, and other people aren't meant to do that. So that's, I feel like I, I wanted that. I wanted to be the young, you know, start when I was young. So I would have a lot of years to write those books. But um, I think God had different plans for me. So. Yeah. And I think trusting it, trusting that you do your side of it and let the Lord work on his side of when it, when it happens. So, and I agree, I don't mean to criticize any person for really getting published as a young parent, because that's, that's a wonderful opportunity too. But I think it's, there's special um, pressures that come in that. Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel it even now just with aging parents and, and grandchildren. And I feel like I just, I'm just squeezing things in. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, So looking back over your career thus far, can you share some highlights, like maybe most exciting moments or difficult moments um, other than that first moment you said when everything came together? Well, lots of difficult moments because you, you definitely, I think it's almost like a, a journey of learning like you bring God into this story and to not compare, to not look sideways. That is so hard because mm-hmm. it's all about, I think especially fiction authors tend to be, I've noticed nonfiction have a little bit more of a, of a um, global view. When I've been to conferences of nonfiction writers, they, most of them have a purpose and a mission. I think fiction writers, we sort of are, are selling our imagination and it's tempting to get pretty focused on self. And I, mm. I think that's always the battle, even on a, on a discouraging way, like where you just feel inferior all the time. Like it's, you're just never enough. And that is just like something I think most authors struggle with. It's something to work through so that you have a strategy to get out of it. Cause it, it really will do nothing for you except to stop you from writing. <laughs> right. Um, highlights. Okay, so there's definitely some highlights that come from winning awards or getting being a finalist for awards, and I'm so thankful for those because there is a wonderful thing about just being recognized. Yes. But probably the best of all are the readers, mm-hmm. and I really mean that. For example, there was one woman, my dad had Alzheimer's, and there was a, I wrote about it on my blog. A woman emailed me because so she was in her 80s, and her daughter, who is probably more my age at the time, had just been diagnosed with early dementia. So we had this reverse experience where she was trying to figure out how to take care of a daughter, yet 40 years younger than her, or 35 years younger, as I was trying to figure out how to take care of my dad. 
and this lovely relationship developed between us that is it's like, oh my goodness, I never would have known her. And I just right. love her so much. There are so many stories like that of people that I never would have known. And I'm, I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed because I really care about them. And I, I actually re- pray for a lot of my readers when they ask for prayer and connect to them and try to answer all my own email. Um, but it's there. It's very meaningful. There's a lot of wonderful people out there, which you would not know by watching the news every day. Right. Wow, that's great. Um, so can you tell us about what you're writing now? Okay, so I just finished a book and just turned it in and it got accepted with just minimal revisions, which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a first in a new series. It's going to be set in in the Amish country. And it's about a rare bird that ends up on an Amish farm. Mm. So are your Amish books um, modern day or are they historical? They're contemporary. Okay. Except for a couple of them have been. And I shouldn't say that because I did do a whole series about the first Amish that came to America in 1737. That's Anna's Crossing based on facts, just like. And I love that. That was really, really interesting because I did not have the, they came on a ship and the whole story was on that ship. And you don't have the props that are very typical of an Amish novel, like a horse and a buggy. You don't have a farm. You don't have any of that. You had to figure out what made them different based on no props. And I I think I figured out a way. Mm. So that, that was called Anna's Crossing and a really special book to me. But so now I'm in a little bit of a pause and I'm going to start, I, if I don't start before the new year, I'm going to be starting, um, maybe hold off and get a little bit, it's kind of nice to have a take a break because yes. during Christmas uh, with so much going on, but the next one, it will be a beach read, kind of a little bit lighter, sort of, um, that is going to be set in Cape Cod and I'm going to start work on that pretty soon. Nice. Will that be contemporary also? Yes, that's contemporary. Okay. Um, So when you think about the historical novels that you've written, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Well, one of the things, excuse me, if we look at, for example, literacy. Yes. We mentioned this before, but I think the idea of taking for granted what is so natural and easy for us. I mean, if you can read anything, thank a teacher because someone helped you get there. So Mm -hmm. I think some of that is the gratitude of just appreciating our our life today. The people that work so hard to help, help make the world a better place. I love the examples of these individuals that are bucking the trend of the day. You know, somehow, especially a female, a strong woman I mean, sometimes I can't even get my gardener to listen to me. I don't know how someone like <laughs> Stewart could get, you know, could actually get the attention of the world at that time in her, her world and mm-hmm. make a difference. And I have another couple other female. There was a Quaker series I wrote featuring Mary Coffin's Starbuck, who, again, this woman in the 1600s, who is considered one, almost the Deborah of the Old Testament. She was a woman that was so respected and kind of people came to her for their problems. This is on Nantucket Island. 
she eventually brought Quaker, the Quaker faith into Nantucket, which is sort of famous for, that's a very strong part of the Nantucket world. And became a minister. And the women at that time could be female ministers. This is probably why it appealed to her. Women had a voice, women had a role. And I think, how did she do that? How did how did Cora do that? I mean, how do they push against the convention at the time? You mentioned that women didn't even have a vote, and yet they, they were willing to make, they knew what they needed to do, and they did it, right? regardless of the pushback. I, I find that just fascinating. Yeah, it is amazing. So basically, to answer your question, I think it's inspiration. I think we really have a lot of inspiration just waiting to be discovered. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So, Suzanne, it was great talking with you today. How can listeners find the Moonlight School? Well, the Moonlight School is already up on all the sites. So you can go to your favorite place or you can go to your favorite bookstore and ask for it. Pre-orders are awesome. They help the author. They help you because you're getting the best price. They are. They help the bookstore. They right. Bookstore people realize someone wants to read this book, so they're stocking it more. So it's such a big help. And in, and if um, you can also go to my website, www.suzannewoodsfisher.com, and find out more there. And I hope people will read it simply because it's just really part of all of our story. Yes, it's a really great book. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Allison. I, I appreciate what you're doing for authors and readers. Thanks. Well, friends, thank you for listening today. If you're interested in the show notes where I have links to some of the things that Suzanne and I talked about, um, you can find them at alisontreat.com slash blog, B-L-O-G. There are show notes to all the shows there. You can check out the other episodes. But while you're in your podcatcher, whatever podcast app you use to listen to my podcast. Um, if you're if you enjoy historical fiction unpacked, could you please do me a huge favor and first of all subscribe so that all of the episodes download right to your listening device. And then secondly, leave a rating and a review. Um, if you're an Apple Podcasts, it's kind of a pain, but it's not too complicated. You just scroll down to the bottom of all the list of all the episodes, and you'll find at the bottom there a place to leave a star rating and to write a review. Um, That would help me out a lot. It would help get the word to other readers of historical fiction who might be interested in this podcast. Um, It lets Apple know that people are enjoying this podcast. So thank you in advance for leaving a review. I also want to encourage you to follow me on Instagram. I'm just at Allison Treat with one L. And um, not only is it a great way to interact with me, but I'm also running a giveaway, which is ending at the end of this month. Um, and I will be giving away some of the books from authors that I've had on the show. If you've enjoyed the interviews with these authors and you think you'd like to read some of their books, a great chance for you to um, acquire some of those books would be to visit my Instagram and check out that giveaway. Thanks again for listening today, my friends. I'm going to leave you with a quote by Frederick Douglass. He said, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. So let's keep reading historical fiction and other books too. 
and not take our literacy for granted.